0: Uh, good morning everyone, uh, just want to wish you a warm welcome and I just trust that we are all doing okay as we continue to live through this period of social distancing. Uh, I do pray that we will be reunited as a church family in the very f- near future uh, and I hope to see everybody in person soon. Also a warm welcome to anyone joining us at DBC for the first time today. Uh, I do hope that you find this service of benefit to you and it maybe it helps to answer any questions you have about Christianity. Today we continue our series entitled Encountering Jesus. And in recent weeks we've looked at different moments in the Old Testament scriptures where ordinary people have encountered uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. This has included the stories of Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Moses, all of whom underwent profound spiritual changes having encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at the story of Gideon uh, and before I give context to Gideon's story, I'm just going to read the passage. So if you can join me uh, by turning your Bibles to the book of Judges, and it's chapter six, and it's verses 11 through 24. So again, that's the book of Judges, chapter six, verse 11 through 24. And the passage is titled, The Lord Calls Gideon. And it says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak, that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abba his son Gideon was fresh and wheat in the winepress, in order to hide from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength you ha- go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Then he said to him, If I have found favour with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat with unleavened bread, put it on this stone and pour the broth on it. So he did that. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the, the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon realized that he was the face of uh, he was the angel of the Lord, he said, "Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face." But the Lord said to him, "Peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die." So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord of peace. It's still an offer of the Aberazarites today. God bless it, the reading of his word. And before examining uh, this passage in detail, I think it's important to give some context about Gideon's background and this period in Israel's history. <clears throat> so at the end of the, the book of Joshua, which directly precedes the book of Judges, we learn that shortly before Joshua's death. It pleads with the people of Israel to remain faithful to their covenant to God. What we read in the book of Judges, however, is about the repeated failure of Israel to uphold their promise to Joshua. It tells the story of how Israel repeatedly makes the same error from turning away from God and worshipping other idols. And as a consequence of their apostasy, God at times allows Israel to be conquered eh, and oppressed by other people in the land such as the Canaanites and the Midianites. And what happens is, is when Israel realises its error, it realises its disobedience, they cry out to the Lord for help, and they repent from their sin. And in response, God raises up a judge to deliver them from oppression and bondage. And once they're been delivered, what normally happens is a period of peace where the people prosper, and then the whole cycle repeats itself. They turn away from God. And they begin to sin again and the whole cycle happens so that cycle is repeated throughout the book of judges from start to finish so the judges are the leaders who succeed the authority of joshua and the authority of moses and they're given responsibility by god to deliver the people uh, from oppression and hardship gideon was the fifth judge to israel and his story is told within chapters 6 through 8 and when he appears when he first appears in the pages of scripture The nation of Israel has been under invasion for seven years eh, by a hoarder of nomadic middenites who deprived them of their crops and deprived them of their livestock. So he's he's living in a period where there's war and the people have been treated really poorly, they've been subjected to massive hardship and because of that, they're deeply discouraged and as, as I've said, they cry out to the Lord for help. And God, hearing their pleas, Spoke, spoke to him through a prophet who challenged the Israelites to recognise their disobedience. And what he does is he sends, he sends an angel to commission Gideon to be Israel's deliverer. And that's where we find ourselves in this morning's passage. So if you turn with me to verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, Joash, sorry, the So it's important to make a distinction between our common understanding of angels, the angel of the lord you know the prevalent view in our culture angels is a a spiritual messenger who's sent by god Eh, a classic example may be the angel gabriel who everyone's familiar with however the angel of the lord is different the angel has not been sent by god to provide a message this is god himself taking on a temporary human form in order to intercede uh, in the affairs of his people and how do we know that we know as we have learned in recent weeks the angel of the lord has appeared many times in the old testament scriptures he appears to abraham and sarah he appears to jacob and he appears to moses he also appeared to hagar who was the egyptian slave of abraham and sarah and as you might recall a couple of weeks ago eh, tj told us a story of sarah eh, abraham and hagar and what happens is, is that sarah convinces abraham to impregnate hagar because of the problems of having conceiving a child. And what results from that is that Sarah becomes very jealous and bitterly resentful towards Hagar and starts to mistreat her. So Hagar flees the couple, she escapes her hostility and abuse she's experiencing, and on her travels, she has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And we are told this in Genesis 16, verse 7 through 10, and it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur, he said hey girl slave of sarah where have you come from and where are you going she replied i'm running away from my mistress sarah the angel of the lord said to her go back to your mistress and submit to her authority the angel of the lord said to her i will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count what's most striking about the passage is the use of the pronoun i You know, and this confirms to us that the angel of the Lord has not been sent by God, but it is God, or Elroy to use Sarah's name for the Almighty. So we can consider the angel of the Lord as a pre incarnate Christ appearing temporarily to key individuals in human form in order to progress his ultimate plan for salvation. All of these accounts in the Old Testament of God taking on a temporary human form are a precursor to him eventually taking a fully lived human experience in the form of Jesus Christ. If we look at the second half of verse 11, in, in verse 12, if you read this for me, it says, His son Gideon was freshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. So, we just that, that, that section of verse appears quite unremarkable and it could be easy just to, to read through that, to overlook it. But it actually gives you a lot of insight into the conditions in which Gideon is experiencing. We read here that due to the threat that the Midnight's pose he's fresh and weak in the winepress which is really just a shallow depression in the rock. It's a task that would have normally been undertaken on a wooden floor but he's doing it in the bare ground in order to minimize noise and keep himself safe. So it just gives us some insight into the conditions in which he's living under. He's living in conditions where he's fearful uh, and he's worried uh, about being attacked, or about being robbed, uh, or being oppressed by these people. In verse 12 it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and it said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. So, God's, the Lord's uh, description of Gideon is being brave, therefore does not accord with his demeanour, there are odds. We learn a bit later on in the passage that Gideon actually feels incapable and completely unequipped for the task that God's going to present to him. So what we can take is, you know, God addressing him in that manner, when referring to him as a brave warrior, it's always that God sees something in Gideon that he can't see himself. And that, that reveals an important aspect about God's character for us all. You know, that God sees our potential and he sees our ultimate destiny, even when we are blind to it. And it therefore begs the question for all of us, are you blind to your own potential to serve God? How often do you dismiss or ignore the calling of God as a consequence of your limited beliefs about yourself? As followers of Jesus, we're all called to <coughs> serve and glorify God. But like everything, we might be tempted to shrink from that calling due to a sense of our own weaknesses or shortcomings or even our sense of unworthiness. And these are issues we all wrestle with to a lesser or greater extent feelings of low self-worth, anxiety, poor self-image and discouragement can rob us of the confidence and the willingness to serve God, and when we are in bondage to such emotions, we may choose to run away from the cross rather than eh, run toward it. The Apostle Paul encourages us to remain steadfast in the face of our own weaknesses and limitations, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 through 31 he says the following, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant, insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption, and order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the apostle here is is reminding us that those who are considered weak or lowly in the world eh, receive God's favour. He favours people when weakness, he favours people of low status. It It reminds us that God's got absolutely no use for the arrogant and prideful people in the world. Such individuals reject his sovereignty and they seek to boast in their own achievements and accomplishments. C.S. Lewis says that pride is a complete anti-God state of mind. There's no room for God in the lives of the proud. So my encouragement to you this morning would be not to be ashamed of your weaknesses, nor deny them, for in them lies lies your true strength. Your limitations will keep you humble, and it will keep you dependent on the Lord. God will use you because of your limitations, not in spite of them. So embrace your shortcomings, and let the grace of Christ Jesus flood your heart, so that you do not rely on your own strength and your own understanding. And only then we may not be tempted to boast in ourselves, but to boast in the cross, in Christ alone. So how does Gideon respond to the, the visitation of the Lord? So in verse 13 it says, Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all the wonders that the ancestors told us about? They said, Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us us over to Midian. So Gideon's reaction to the Lord addressing him as a valiant warrior is not one of enthusiasm. It's one of pessimism, disappointment and despondency. He even challenges the angel, if the Lord is with us, then why is all this happened? So it's clear from the be- verse that he doubts their identity of the angel under the weight of his suffering and he feels abandoned by God. And that's perhaps an experience everyone who's listening this morning can resonate with. It's likely at some point in your life you've wondered if God is really with you. And it might be particularly true for anyone listening who is undecided or und- unsure about the existence of God. One of the intellectual objections to Christianity within our culture concerns the nature of suffering and evil. It's a sticking point for many people. When tragedy strikes or a horror unfolds, many people are apt to believe that God has abandoned them or he wasn't there in the first place. And some of these objections relate to apparent contradictions concerning the, the omniscience of God. Some might say if God's all powerful, then you he he must choose not to prevent terrible situations from happening. If he's all-powerful he must choose not to prevent situations from happening and if that is true then we can't think of him as all-loving. Conversely some might say if he is all-loving then he cannot be all-powerful otherwise out of benevolence he would not to stop ter- terrible situations from occurring and the fact that they do happen must mean that he doesn't love us he's not all-loving. So these are two attributes of God that can be difficult for people to reconcile and it can cause them to doubt or deny God's existence and if i'm being honest there's no easy answers to the the question of suffering even in the world as christians were apt to say things like you know God's got a purpose for our suffering or he's working out good in a difficult situation and i've no doubt there's truth in those claims but in the midst of human suffering such statements can seem good unhelpful and even potentially insensitive Many years ago, before I came to faith, I worked with several families whose children were seriously ill, and tragically, some of these children died. And the grief of these families was unimaginable, uh, and it was difficult to witness, much less ha- have to, to work through. You know, it was really palpable, you could feel it really sinking in at your own heart and your own soul. And there was many occasions I, asked, I found myself asking hard questions about life and about the nature of God. You know, the death of a child just seemed inexplicable to me. It made no sense and in such moments it's easy to understand why some people may feel abandoned by God or that it was never there in the first place. And to be honest there's no straightforward explanations for the existence of suffering and tragedies in this world. But what we can say with complete certainty as Christians is it's not because God is indifferent to our pain or that he doesn't love us. We know that's because God chose to share in our suffering. You know, Christ walked to earth, he lived in poverty, he was rejected, despised, betrayed and abandoned by everyone he loved. He was subjected to tort- torture and he was murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. You know, Christ was well acquainted with human suffering, he was no stranger to it and he embraced it as an act of love for us all. And this is a view of God that is unique among all our faith systems and world views. And it's a vision captured so powerfully by the poet, Edward Chattel, in the final stanza of his poem, called Jesus of the Scars, and he says this, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And that poem to me just really conveys the deep conviction and understanding that God knows our pain. He knows our suffering and he's with us even in our darkest moments. And just lastly in this topic, if, if any of you have ever had to take your child to the hospital or the doctor for treatment or injections, you'll know that it's often times a very dramatic and distressing experience for the child, you know they can really resist the intervention of the doctor, they get upset, they get distressed, they try and cling to you, uh, you know they're in a state of confusion and upset. And they'll look to you as a parent to intervene and and stop that. And then when they realise you're not going to do that, and you'll catch this if you're not a parent, your child will look at you in a state of confusion, betrayal and hurt. You see it in their eyes, and it's really, really gut-wrenching as a parent. You know, and this is a moment when a child feels that they need their parent the most. And yet, when help's not forthcoming, when they're not interceding, they feel betrayed, let down, and abandoned, it's inexplicable to them. But it's only because they can't make sense of that situation. You know, from their perspective, for the perspective of that child, all that's happened is unjust, it's unnecessary and it's terrible to go through. But us as parents, on the, on the other hand, us as parents see the bigger picture and we see the necessity for that child's temporary suffering. So I sometimes wonder if we're not just all small children, spiritually speaking. You know, we're terrified and we're lost because we're blind to the bigger picture. But God sees all and he sees our pain. And I'm absolutely convinced he's with us, even when it doesn't seem like he is. No matter how it appears to us this side of heaven, God is with us and he's walking through it with us. So I would say to anybody listening, if you've got any questions about Christianity, to please get in contact, and we count it as a blessing, and I think there's, there's an interactive chat either this side of the screen or that side of the screen, but you can chat to somebody just now, live, eh, or if this is a recording, then we would ask that you would contact us here at the church, and you can reach us on info at denistonbaptist.co.uk. So if we look at verses 14 to 17, it says, "The Lord turned to him and said, Go go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. But I I will be with you, the Lord said. You will strike Midian down if it were one man. Then he said to him, If I have found favour with you, give me a sign that you're speaking with me. So what we're learning in these verses is that Gideon shrinks for the magnitude of the command that God's given him. And he tries to excuse himself for eventually, comes up with or lots of excuses why he can't do it. And even though he's provided uh, assurance that he'll receive divine aid, he still balks, he still hesitates, and he wants a grander sign. He wants a sign to be assured that God's really with him. And much like Moses before him, he's asking for a sign for the angel to be fully convinced. So, the verse reveals the extent of Gideon's self doubt and, and his loss or lack of faith in God. You know, he lacks conviction that God's going, uh, God will give him all he needs, he'll equip him with all he requires in order to complete his mission. And what he does instead is tries to avert God's plan for his life. He's not willing to step out in faith unless he receives an undeniable sign. So, why has his faith become so depleted? Why has he reacted, this? If you go back a bit earlier in the book of Judges to the time of Deborah, who was the judge who was raised before Gideon, we learn that she delivers Israel from the oppression of the Canaanites and following on victory there's a period of peace that's lasting 40 years. So Israel's prospering during this period, they're reconnected with God and all going well and then they turn away from him again, they lapse into sin and the whole cycle uh, happens again. <clears throat> So by the time uh, Gideon encounters the angel, the Midianites have been waging war on Israel for seven years. And what we could say is that during that seven year period, Gideon began to forget about God's goodness and God's faithfulness that he's previously demonstrated to the people. And that's revealed to us when he says, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. So I do wonder how many of us at DBC this morning can relate to the experience of Gideon. You know, struggles with faith are not uncommon. Many people can have their doubts about God or about scripture or elements of the Christian doctrine. We might recall periods in our life where our faith was robust and resolute only for it to falter when a testing situation arose or, or a crisis eh, manifested in our lives. And during his experience, much like Gideon, We may forget what God has done for us in the past, and we become fearful, hesitant, and spiritually deaf to his word. And in such moments, we're we're apt to trust in ourselves, and not in him. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says the following when discussing the nature of faith. He says, I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some reason for reconsidering that it, turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but this is not so. What uh, Lewis is getting at here, he's suggesting is that, even though we've accepted the truth of the gospel and our reasoning mind, we know it to be true, we're prone to forget, we're prone to forgetting the truth. And he says this happens is because we're engaged in a battle between faith and reason on the one hand, and emotion and imagination on the other, we're in a constant war with ourselves. So, even though our faith is rooted in solid evidence and good reason, it can be diminished in the face of overwhelming emotion and changing moods. Now, I've been abseiling a few times in my life, and if you've ever done that, you know the hardest part is leaning back in the rope. It's a delicate moment. And despite the fact, you know, I've done that numerous times, so despite the fact I know the rope can take my weight, I've got complete faith in it. And I've seen other people do it. Despite the fact there's solid evidence to suggest I'm going to be okay, I'm still gripped with fear and anxiety. Every part of my being saying, don't lean back, don't lean back. And in that moment, my faith in that rope, as solid as it is, is rendered useless by my imagination and by my emotions. And so many the struggles with our faith, as a similar process happens, as we're exposed to changing moods and negative emotions, uh, our faith can be uh, beaten back into submission. And in these moments, we may become oppressed by negative thoughts and feelings. And, you know, we can really, really struggle to hold on to the truth of the gospel. And in response, we become like Gideon, we become fearful, avoidant and unwilling to follow God's plan for our lives. So what do we do under such circumstances? How do we hold on to our faith when we're under fire? Let's look at the remaining verses of the passage. It says in verse eighteen, "Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let let me bring a gift and set it before you." And he said, "I will stay until you return." So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to, to him under the oak the angel of god said to him take the meat with the unleavened bread put it on the stone and pour the broth on it." so he did that the angel of the lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread fire came up from the rock and he consumed the meat and the unleavened bread then the angel of the lord vanished from his sight when gideon realized that he was the angel of the lord he said oh no lord god I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you, don't be afraid for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace, It's still an offer of the Abba's rites today. So if we look at verses uh, 22 to 24, uh, specifically we find that after making a sacrifice to God and receiving the desired sign, Gideon finally comes to believe the true identity of the angel. You know he no longer doubts that God is him. and the passage ends with Gideon building an altar in honour of the Lord, which symbolises the renewal of his faith. So how might we renew our faith or, or uh, manage to maintain it through crisis? C.S. Lewis says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has accepted in spite of your ch- changing moods. So as I've said, so many of our doubts emanate from negative emotional states that hold our hostage and imprison our faith. So the starting point for us is to take responsibility for our emotions and our moods. We must find a better way of managing our emotional life. We must fight our changing moods, at every turn them remain obedient to God. And that's the essence of what Paul tells us to do in 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, he says, Since the weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So to do this we must be willing to immerse ourselves in the truth of the gospel. We cannot rely on yesterday's labours in the world as being sufficient to provide fuel for our faith today. as C.S. Lewis points out, we are apt to forget what we believe to be true unless we're constantly reminded of it. Therefore, the destruction of spiritual stronghold is dependent on our willingness to lead the Christian life and obey Christ even when we don't feel like it. Even when our moods and our emotions are are trying to intervene and stop us doing that, we have to battle past them. I think this is particularly pertinent during this period of lockdown. During this period of social distancing, many members in the church are wrestling with lots of challenges in their life. Some people have sick relatives at the moment. Some of us are lost people we have in the last few weeks experienced bereavement. Other people are are trying to cope with their own health which is in decline. Other people are just wrestling with issues around loneliness and isolation. This is a time when our moods may have a a strong influence over uh, how we feel and how we think. And we may begin to drift away from the habits and the routines that keep us connected and wedded to the world connected to the Church. And although we'll still always hold on to the truth of the Gospel in our minds, you know, if we disconnect from the Word and prayer, the splendour of what the Gospel means for our lives begins to ebb away as our emotions and our moods come to dominate our everyday experience. And whilst we still intellectually understand it was eh, justified, justified by faith alone, slowly and insidiously, we begin to seek justification through other things in the world. If we struggle to hold on to the truth of the gospel keep that firm and centre in our mind, we suddenly begin to rely on politics, money, our spouse, Netflix, even ministry activities as the majesty of the gospel fades to the periphery, fades to the background in our mind. And this is a time we may be tempted to forget the goodness that God has done in our lives you know all the goodness and the faithfulness of the past we begin to lose it as we become increasingly anxious, depressed or worried and that's just further depletes our faith even more, it becomes a vicious circle. So if you are wrestling with discouragement at the moment or you are having struggles with your faith then please remember like Gideon we have also received a sign but it's been the greatest sign in the form of Lord Jesus Christ the cornerstone of our faith is our risen Jesus. And the faith in him we have received salvation. I'll just say that again. Salvation is of the Lord. Him alone. And let, let that be a great truth. That permeates through the foundation of all our lives here at DBC. Let it be the hope that we hold in our hearts. During the challenges and the suffering that we may encounter in this life. You know, hold the truth of the gospel in your heart and let it radiate within every aspect of your life stay close to the word so that you re-encounter jesus christ every day of your life do not take a day off the devil does not take a day off nor should you let christ be the hope and the reason within you let let, let that truth become the epicenter of your life. however i do realize you know, struggles with faith are common, struggles with discouragement are common. So if that's the case for you, it's important to remember what Lewis says. We need to keep alive in our minds the things we know to be true, or we'll forget them. So with that in mind, here's three things that you can do practically to eh, remain connected to the Word of God. So the first thing is to orientate your life to include daily prayer. Remember, we're told repeatedly in the scriptures that we're expected to pray, we're expected to do it, it's a non-negotiable. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the starting point for us is to take our fears our worries and our concerns straight to God. You know, we must reach out to him and let him open the eyes of our heart. This is the example the Lord gave us Himself when He faced His own personal anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we read John chapter 17 verses 1-5, it says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, for you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, <clears throat> and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Amen. So just pray that God will glorify you and that and so that you can glorify him. That's what we're asked to do as Christians. You know, Ask God what His plan is for your life, and seek to carry that out. You'll make your request known to Him, and He'll respond to you in accordance with His own will and His own plan for you. The second thing is to orientate your life to include daily reading of the Word. In the Book of Jeremiah, chapter twenty-nine, verse—sorry, eh, chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-nine—that verse 29 it is written, "Is not my Word like fire?" and like a sledgehammer that polarises rock. So it's really vital that we read God's Word on a daily basis, so that the truth of the scriptures becomes deeply embedded in your heart. It's only if we do that will the implications for the gospel for our lives become deeply realised, and we'll our proclivity to look elsewhere in the world, for salvation cease. Only by reading the Word can we know God's will for our lives and develop the courage the wisdom, the discernment required to accept God's calling for our lives. So, my encouragement would be to feast on the word, feast on it, and let the scriptures nourish your soul. Let it be the fuel of your faith. And just the last point is just to orientate your lifetime to the church. You know, in this time of fragmented and separated future, it's easy to disconnect and be stuck imprisoned in your own mind. So my encouragement would be, do not let doubts or worries get a foothold in your mind. If you're having a hard time at the moment, reach out to someone and speak to them. And please remember, the church is the fellowship of the flawed. We've all got struggles, we've all got shortcomings, we've all got fears, and you're not alone. But just remember, as I said earlier, in our weakness lies our strength. So there's no need to be anxious about sharing any of that. Please stay connected to the body of Christ and use it so that you may grow and thrive in his presence. You know, the Apostle Paul experienced horrendous hardships and struggles throughout his whole life. There's too many to mention, but he never lost faith through any of that and he embraced his weakness and he embraced his suffering as a blessing, which is just so counter-culture. You know, so my prayer for the church this morning that we would also uh, Counter our sufferings and uh, our hardships as a blessing and that one day all of us will get to echo the words of Paul when he said I have fought the good fight I have finished the race and I have kept the faith and just to finish this morning, it's not part of the passage but if you look at the end of the book of Gideon what we discover is, is that he goes on to deliver Israel for the oppression in the Midianites. And despite having an army initially that numbered the tens of thousands, he eventually wins the war with only 300 men. Only 300. And I just think that story provides hope for us at DBC and indeed the broader church in the west. You know, when we look, look in the western world at the minute, church numbers are declining, and it might be easy to feel discouraged or see that as a worrying trend. But what that story reminds us is that God doesn't require a great number of people to achieve great things. He only requires the few, those of faith who are dedicated to him. That's what's happened in previous revivals, if we go back to the time of the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield. These were only a handful of people with deep gospel realisation and they managed to change the spiritual landscape, not only of Great Britain but the United States. What's remarkable about that is that there's no indication that could or should happen. There was nothing that would suggest that was going to happen. Martin Lloyd Jones, a uh, famous preacher from Wales, said that revival occurs when our whole church or a country or a culture recaptures the wonder of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. You know, we no longer only believe abstractly or intellectually that salvation is of the Lord, but we lead our lives with that, that conviction embedded in our hearts, it's rooted in our souls. And when it moves from there down there, you know, our heart moves in ways that we can't imagine. And I just think that's a reminder to us at DBCs, not only just to believe the gospel and to hold the truth in our minds, to let it penetrate deep into our souls. And I really do believe that even though we're a small church in numbers, uh, in terms of numbers, but with God's grace and help, as uh, mighty to safe, we can do great things. But we have to embrace our own shortcomings, we have to embrace our own suffering in the midst of God's calling. We have to maintain our faith. We have to pray persistently that the profoundity, the wonder of the gospel will be deeply realised by ourselves first and foremost, and then let that extend outward. I just hope that's just a prayer I have for the church, but also for the many churches in the nation. Thank you. We just close with prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Father, we just give thanks for the faithfulness and the goodness you have shown each and every one of us, we give thanks to the fact that this is unceasing, it never wavers. Father, we pray that you would bless and equip our hearts so that we would remain resolute in our faith, Father, regardless of what life has to throw us. Father, may the understanding that salvation of the Lord be a great truth. That influences every thought every decision every action that we take in this life and may the gospel be deeply revised in our hearts and our trust in you absolute father that has called us in jesus name amen